Good evening, everyone. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSE, and it's my pleasure to welcome you this evening to the Amartya Sen Lecture. Let me say a word about our format before proceeding to introductions. We will first hear from our distinguished lecturer, Kaushik Basu. We will then hear comments, questions from our own, Lord Nicholas Stern. And then, if by chance, through popular acclaim, the audience should insist that Amartya Sen rise to the stage, there's a good chance that he will. But it's up to you to make him feel welcome. Kaushik Wasu is the Senior Vice President and Chief Economist of the World Bank. He's the second World Bank Chief Economist from a developing country. This, I think, is listed not to be a mark of distinction in his biography, but to be a comment on the history of the World Bank and possibly on social progress. Kaushik Basu is on leave from Cornell University, where he's Professor of Economics and the C. Marx Professor of International Studies. Prior to this, he served as the Chief Economic Advisor to the Government of India at the Ministry of Finance. Earlier, he was Professor of Economics at the Delhi School of Economics, where he founded in 1992 the Center for Development Economics and was its first Executive Director. He has also held a number of other positions, which I won't list for you, um, as a visiting professor, as a distinguished visitor, as a fellow, as a founding member of a variety of institutions of major distinction. He is currently the president of the Human Development and Capabilities Association, which was founded by Amartya Sen, making his appearance here tonight especially appropriate. And he has been a leading advisor to a variety of organizations on practical work in development economics and in law and economics, as well as a key academic leader in these fields. He's a fellow of the Econometric Society and honored in a variety of other ways. His most recent books are Beyond the Invisible Hand, Groundwork for a New Economics, and An Economist's Miscellany. He'll speak to us tonight on law, economics, and the Republic of Beliefs. Kasha. <laughs> Professor Calhoun, uh, Professor Nick Stern, students and faculty. Uh, I can't tell you um, how, for me, this is uh, a moving emotional uh, moment uh, for more reasons than one. Um, both Amartya and the London School of Economics uh, played a very pivotal role uh, in my choice of career, in what I came to do. So uh, having both of them uh, together, LSE doing this and a lecture in honor of Amartya, is just very, very special for me. Um, I came to London actually uh, to, not to uh, do a PhD in economics and be an academic. The plan was that I'll do a master's and then move on to law, which is what I had always planned to do. And it was at the LSE uh, 
listening to lectures uh, during my master's course, and most prominently by Amartya, there were others as well who played a very important role, that by the end of the master's, I decided that I'm now going to do a PhD if Amartya agrees to take me on, and uh, be an academic. So I took that decision. I have to say, after that, there were three, four years when, after finishing my PhD, I did wonder if I did do the right thing. But soon I realized that I had, was also plain lucky that this made me find what I have the most interest in. The world of ideas is exciting, and I discovered that during my time at LSE, and I'm really just immensely grateful to Amartya for that opportunity. You know, uh, uh, he straddles uh, sort of two ends of the intellectual spectrum, which very few, few people do. One is the hard logic reasoning. I mean, he used to give uh, lectures in uh, social choice theory uh, those days. And also broad philosophy. I mean, there are people who excel in one or the other, but straddling these two is very rare. And I have to say that I can count him as among the four or five most important intellectual influences. And I'm talking of not only people I've met, but people I've read for me. So this is really fantastic that I'm here to give that lecture. And his lectures were also, it's a combination of intellectually powerful and also fun. I must tell you, uh, people who know the um, um, social media better than me tell me that my tweet, which has been most retweeted and favorited, is not on inflation or the Eurozone crisis or the Treaty of Lisbon or any of those things, but a completely trivial true story about Amartya, which I fitted into 140 uh, characters. <laughs> It's, and I know this for sure, it's a true story because I heard it from a Canadian professor who was present there. This was the young Amartya, very early days of his career as an economist in Canada, in this professor's room trying to explain his name, spell his name to a Canadian telephone operator, <laughs> repeatedly saying Sen and that person couldn't follow. Finally, he said that, well, it's S for somebody, E for everybody, and N for nobody. <laughs> So it's really a great honor for me to give this lecture named after somebody, everybody, and nobody. <laughs> LSE was also, this was a part of uh, my life when really the world opened up. I mean, we at LSE were reacting to the world all around. And I have to say there's something exciting when you're reacting to a part of the world which has nothing to do with your everyday life. Something happening in Chile, something happening in China. In LSE, we were reacting, and it, it opened up a whole world for me, and there were several professors who had very major influences on me. I remember, in fact, my econometrics teacher was Ken Wallace. I've forgotten the bulk of econometrics that he taught me, but his first lecture is uh, very vivid in my mind because he said that, a bit sheepishly, that I'm afraid that you will have to read my textbook on econometrics, and then paused and added, preferably the hard-covered version. <laughs> that was LSE, my time. Well, that much for trivia. Let me jump into the topic of today. I actually, I have to say one more thing. That I did mention that um, after LSE, three, four years, uh, when I went back to Delhi and started teaching, I did wonder at times, had I done the right thing, this complete change in career. I've often mentioned that two individuals played a very important role in 
helping me pull out and see the world once again. And uh, I'm just very, very glad that one of them is here today. I'm referring to Nick Stern. It was Nick Stern and Albert Hirschman. In those days when I was chugging away and teaching at LSE, in quick succession, they had visited Delhi. And I got one invitation that time to the Institute for Advanced Study uh, in Princeton and one from Nick Stern to Warwick. And I had done two visits to Warwick. And really, these were not, I was not looking to go out. And both Albert Hirschman and Nick had gone out of their way with no conceivable interest of their own, offering me this opportunity for which I'm very grateful. So having all of them together here is indeed very special for me. The topic that I've chosen today is a rather heavier-duty topic uh, than one usually gives in named lectures, but I've also been doing so much of sort of hands-on policy work over the last five years that I thought I will take a breather and get into something which is fairly academic, um, analytical, uh, using this opportunity of being at LSE. This is on law and economics and why I think that the way it is done in mainstream economics is wrong and we ought to change it. I'm not saying that it has not been important. It has been important. It has taken us some distance. But there is need for changing the way we do this. And the way I'm going to give my talk, since I don't have the summary here, is I want to begin by giving you a little bit of my hands-on experience in India when I was chief economic advisor in the area specifically of law and economics, couple of encounters, and which brought back some analytical ideas which I had had earlier on law and economics. I had written occasionally a little bit, but it had fallen out. And during this Indian experience, uh, one in particular very important uh, law and economics experience for me, very hands-on policy experience, I'll tell you just now, it all sort of rushed back, and then I thought I have to, I have been thinking for some time, I have to get back to the topic. And so I'm going to develop that, give you that background, then I'm going to give you a short overview of what is the standard law and economics model. It's very easy, I can show it to you on a one PowerPoint page. Then I'm going to tell you what I think should replace that standard approach. And this is going to be a half-done paper, and in the end, where do we go from here? And there are some important questions. I know a couple of first steps that we should take, but I'm going to take you into that. So that's roughly what I'm going to cover today. You know, Philip Larkin had once said that he hated to have poetry read out to him. He preferred to read poetry himself because that way he knew how far he was from the end. So I've given you now a broad summary of uh, what I'm going to cover so you will know how far I'm from the end from the way I'm presenting it. So the way it is typically done is law and um, economics um, is the, the model of Gary Becker, Coase, uh, Guido Calabresi. But before that, I want to tell you why this topic came back to me and I thought that I'm going to take this opportunity to develop it. Uh, my two and a half years in India, soon after I uh, joined, uh, one little idea in law and economics struck me. Corruption, as you all know, has been a very major problem in India. People have been thinking about what to do. There have been agitations in the streets about corruption. And I 
put my mind to it as chief economic advisor, and I was seeing some corruption in some uh, prominent areas, like, you know, uh, if you try to distribute food, which the government does to the poor, and I think giving the poor the right to a certain amount of food is the correct thing to do, but the mechanism through which it's done, there's a huge amount of leakage. The law that the poor have the right to food, the law does not get followed at all, and that was a frustration. There was bribery, and uh, all the time in sort of petty ways that you could feel, ordinary people would feel in India that you would be asked to pay bribes, and there were agitations in the streets that this ought to stop. What I wanted to argue is that the agitation has to, combi has to be combined with analysis. And an idea struck me, which I made the mistake. I think if I had done it later in my career in government, I wouldn't have done it. I wrote up a paper on corruption in India and posted it on the website of the Ministry of Finance. And a furor broke out over that. I'll tell you what the idea is. In India, there is a law called the Prevention of Corruption Act 1988, which says that bribe giving is wrong, as indeed it should say. I mean, I wouldn't even know what it would mean if you didn't say that. But it goes on to say that the bribe giving and the bribe taking are both equally wrong. And if you're caught for an act of bribery, the giver and the taker will both be punished from between six months in jail to five years in jail, etc. Now, uh, there are some sub-clauses with exceptions and all, but I don't want to go into the detail. Basically, the giver and the taker are both punishable under the uh, eyes of the law. The, what has happened um, um, in India is every time there is a bribery case that comes up, you never find anyone getting up and saying, uh, providing evidence that, look, I know that there was bribery because I paid the bribe. And you can see why that happens, because once the act of bribery has taken place, the giver and the taker, by the nature of the law, have a common interest to hide the fact of the bribery. And it was virtually impossible to know that bribery has taken place because the main person will not stand up and uh, admit to that. I used some very elementary game theory, two-period game theory models, sub-game perfection. Of course, I didn't use those words in the paper. And I wrote up the following argument. When there is bribery, let the law be changed so that the, I actually was applying this to harassment bribes, so I should clarify. Bribes where you're being denied something that you have a right to get. You've passed your driving test, you drove very well, but just before handing over the license, you're told you have to pay a bribe. That's a harassment bribe. So there are lots of other walks of life. You've done your income tax properly, but they are harassing you and uh, saying that unless you give cash to the person help, uh, uh, to whom you're submitting the form, they won't clear you. Those are one-siders being harassed. In those cases, I argued that the giver and the taker should be um, treated differently. You can double the punishment of the person who takes the bribe, the civil servant or the person in government, and you should make bribe giving, in the case of harassment bribes, a legal act. That you're, if you're being harassed, you can give. That will, to my mind, immediately change the nature of the game, that 
after the bribery has taken place, one side will be now more ready. I, mean, I know there are complicated arguments of future reprisals and things like that, but one side, the giver, will now be bolder to stand up and say that, look, I was harassed and I had to give a bribe. That was the idea that was put up. Furor broke out. There were uh, debates on television. Two members of parliament wrote to the prime minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh that time, asking that this uh, unethical argument, that immoral argument should be taken off from the um, uh, website of uh, the uh, Ministry of Finance. And I remember, and this is a tribute to India I must give, um, it was a Saturday evening when a very popular television show um, 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 uh, conductor, uh, Barkhadat, was phoning me repeatedly saying that, come to my show, we'll have a whole lot of people and your idea will be discussed. And usually these are slanging matches where you scream and shout on television. <laughs> I did not mind those matches. So I was ready to go, but I thought I had given enough grief to the finance minister, who's now the president of the country, and the <laughs> prime minister that time, Dr. Singh, and I thought maybe before going on television and debating this out, I should ask them whether they really want me to do that, to churn up and defend. So I phoned Saturday evening, the prime minister's, the finance minister was away in Vietnam, I discovered. I phoned the prime minister's residence. Within 10 minutes, he came on the line. And I said, Prime Minister, I don't want to uh, uh, give a burden of decision on you, but uh, there's this idea of mine which I had put up and which is causing furor on uh, uh, television and radio, and you know letters have been written to you. Should I go and talk about it in public? Now, this is very typical, uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh, who thought a little bit. He said that, you know, I've read your idea. I don't agree with your idea, I have to say. But the decision whether you go on uh, um, television or not is your decision, and as an advisor, you have the right to defend ideas and put them out in public space. And the finance minister that time also never said that take it off from the Ministry of Finance website. The paper is still there. I checked up before this lecture. <laughs> And that is a tribute, I have to say, to the openness that this was allowed, that I was sitting in government putting forward an idea which they did not agree, the Prime Minister, but not once was I told to take this off from the website. Anyway, while working on this and the implementation of the law, that the law doesn't get implemented well at all, people uh, give bribes and get away, I felt that this, there is something that here that needs to be researched into. I had early ideas and now this opportunity I've developed this. And in particular, what I'm going to address is the following frustration that you hear mainly in developing countries. People will say, the law is fine on paper, but it does not get implemented. Why is that so? And I think there is a methodological problem in economics, the law in economics, which handicaps us in this. And now I'm going to enter methodological terrain with a one pager or maybe two pages, I don't quite remember how I wrote it, of the standard model of law, the law and economics, which began with probably uh, Coase and Calabresi, but I'm going to use uh, Gary Becker's model, and I'm going to just put it up over here if it comes up. Yes, it's working. And it's a page, another page as dense as this, so it's very little. So uh, you should pay attention to what I'm doing. This is entirely really the Gary Becker model, but it's important. I do think that it is an important contribution to economics. It has taken us a great distance, but there is also a fault line beneath it. So suppose an entrepreneur is considering a mining venture. This is legal right now. And let the net returns, the cost of the mines, the returns that you will get from whatever you dig out, the net returns happens to be B. 
The venture is worthwhile. This is economics will typically tell you if B is greater than zero. It's a net return, the costs and everything. If you're making a profit, you go for it. That's standard. Now, I'm going to bring in a little bit of law and economics the way Gary Becker brought it in. The important difference, and this I will stress because a lot will hinge on that, is what Gary Becker was bringing to this field, which was earlier already brought in by Coase for sure, is an amoral view of individuals that... Uh, Penalty or a punishment is almost like a price. So you don't think of the, people don't think of the moral side of it. They just weigh the pros and cons. So here is Gary Becker's thing. Suppose now the government enacts a new law and says mining is illegal. If you're caught mining, you will, you will be punished. And this is the law. The standard model with uh, the law having come in. Now the government declares mining is illegal. Probability of getting caught is P. If you get caught, you'll have to pay a fine. Therefore, your expected cost is P multiplied by F. If B is greater than P multiplied by F, then you will commit this crime. The benefit exceeds the expected punishment. And therefore, if B is less than P multiplied by F, you will not commit the crime. And, you know, this is actually a very useful little insight. P multiplied by F, probability of catching a criminal and the fine that you slap on the criminal when caught, these are two variables in the hands of the government. And you can play around with this. There will be many situations in life where catching the person is very difficult. So to raise the probability of catching a person raising P can be very expensive for the government. You need a big police force, you need a machinery to find people committing the crime. Whereas raising the fine is a stroke of pen. When a person has been caught, increase the fine. So many would take an important lesson out of this, that if you want to raise P multiplied by F, this over here, so that it exceeds B, the easy way to do it is you raise the fine, don't spend too much on policing. But then there are other problems, especially in poor countries. How much fine can you raise? The person very often won't be in a position to pay uh, the fine. Even in rich countries, there will be bankruptcy laws under which you can't collect beyond a certain amount. So there may be a cap on what you can do with F, so you have to raise P. So what I mean to say is that this is an important contribution to economics, but it has problems. And what is the problem? That is what I'm going to go into now. There are some simple criticisms about bribery, muddies this, because when you're caught, you don't have to pay a fine, you may want to pay a bribe, etc. But I don't want to actually waste any time on that. This model, by the way, is rooted, that this is important to keep in mind, and I will hold on to that assumption, very mainstream neoclassical economics assumption, that human beings have well-defined preferences and utilities they are trying to maximize, and they are amoral creatures. So fact that something is illegal, all they know is the cost-benefit analysis of if I do that. They don't think of this as if it's illegal, I should not do. I'm not saying human beings are actually like that, but I want to hold on to that assumption because I, I want to argue that with that mainstream assumption in place, not being challenged, the mainstream construction of law and economics has a fault line. If you may want to challenge the mainstream neoclassical assumption, and I, if I have time, I'll touch on that, but that's not the main thing I want to do. So that assumption is there. Human beings have well-defined preferences. They are amoral. Now, begin to think a little bit. Why does a law uh, change behavior? Why can a law change behavior? And the answer is, and I've already given you the answer, that 
a new law changes your calculations of the returns that you get from different acts. Earlier, when you were thinking of mining, you were thinking of the cost of digging out the coal, the returns that you will get out of that. Now, on top of that, you may be charged a fine, and the fine comes in. So our first thought is, when a new law comes into place, the payoff that people get, that payoff calculation changes. I'm going to use a language of game theory a little bit over here. The payoff function is taken to be something that changes. Payoff function is when everyone has chosen his or her action. The payoff that I will get, that you will get, everyone will get, that is each person's payoff function. Given people's choice of actions, how much do I get? Someone digs out coal, the police comes and catches, etc. People have done their thing, the returns that I get. So the standard view of law and economics, and I've already used it, is that when a new law comes into place, it changes people's payoff functions and therefore changes their behavior. But pause and think for one moment. Why should a new law change entire society's payoff functions? Because in the end, what is a, the, a law? A law is a little bit of scribbling on paper. It's some ink on paper. You've written down something. The game of life that you're playing before that law was enacted and after the law is enacted, at one level it's the same thing, same game you're playing. In between the last game and this, something has been written down on paper. Why should that change anything as fundamental as payoff functions? The reason why we... So this is the ink on paper criticism, that the law strictly cannot change the payoff function. Why do we think it changes the payoff function? Why do we make this very common mistake? That is the reason. When we write down the economy as a game, as economists tend to do, we actually do not write down the full game. We leave out the police, the court, the magistrates outside of the game, think of them as robotic creatures who will follow the law as soon as the law comes into play. If they will, of course, follow what they are supposed to do, then for the remainder of the population, of course, payoffs can change. But if you toss into this analysis every creature uh, in your society, then if everyone behaves the same way after the law as before the law, then the payoffs that you will get will be the same after the law as before the law. The payoff function seems to change only because you don't write down the game of life, the game of economy correctly. You leave some people out and assume they are machines who are going to carry out your orders. Once you toss them in, into the game, then the game of life does not change. And you can think of many examples uh, here. For instance, um, in the Becker story, someone has to impose that fine on you. Someone has to come and impose that fine. Who was that person? If that person was already there, you should have brought that person into the game. In a speed limit, a government imposes a new law saying that you can't drive above 65 miles per hour in the United States, 65 miles per hour or 70 miles per hour. Now, when you are calculating whether to drive faster than 75 miles per hour, you calculate with this new law, well, I might get caught. So over and above the other risks, I may have to pay a fine. But that's assuming that the police will take the law seriously. If everyone treats the law as some ink on paper and behave the way they behaved in the past, you'll get the same payoff. Everyone will get the same payoff. There is indeed a troubling open question over here. Why do you do that? 
and how do you handle this problem. I'm going to give you one example of something actually which I had first encountered in Amartya's lecture over here with the prisoner's dilemma and because that will allow me to pick it up a bit further if I decide to go into the last one or two slides which I probably won't be able to go into but still let me show you this. Some of you won't be able to see the last row of the prisoner's dilemma in the front, uh, those in the front row, but I will tell you what the last row is, so you'll know. The prisoner's dilemma is a two-person game where most of you will know this. You have to choose between actions A and B. If both players choose action A, they get seven utils or dollars, however you want to measure happiness. If both choose B, they get two. If one chooses A and the other chooses B, you get one gets uh, one, A gets, sorry, player one gets one, player B gets eight, and the other way around, it's reversed. So these are the payoffs. If you look at the game for a while, or some of you will already know the answer, that with rational players, there's, you don't even have to think very much, because no matter what the other person does, you are better off by choosing B. And if both of you choose B, however, you do badly. You get $2 each, whereas you could have got $7 each. That's the prisoner's dilemma. Give a law and economics person this particular game, and the law and economics person will say that, look, I mean, one way to correct this situation, and actually that does play a role, but there are assumptions hidden over there, is impose a fine for action B. It's action B which is causing a problem. So whoever chooses action B, charge that person $2 for choosing action B. What will happen? This eight will become six. These two twos will become zero. You, two dollars is taken away. This eight will become six. And that's what my next PowerPoint will show. Prisoner's dilemma with a fine is this game where I've taken away two dollars from whoever has chosen B. In this game now, Actually, it's best to play A for both players because B, you're being penalized by playing B and you will get to the good outcome. You will get to $7 each. So a new law has changed your behavior. But how did you, when you enacted the new law and a fine was imposed, clearly there was another person, minimally you need that, who will come and charge that fine of you. If there was another person in the game, you shouldn't have written this down as a two-player game. You have to write this down as a three-player game minimally. The two prisoners playing this game, plus at least a police, maybe if there is a court and a judge who will punish the police if the police misbehaves, you need the judge also there. So strictly speaking, you should write down everyone. If you write down everyone and give them all the choices that they have, whether you have the new law or not, they could still do what they were doing earlier. The game cannot be changed by a new law. Now that takes us to the question, if the game of the economy cannot be changed by a new law, your payoff functions cannot be changed, how can the law affect behavior at all? I know I began with developing countries where very often a law is ignored the way I'm saying. I mean, the law is written on paper, no one looks at it. But we also know that the law does make a difference. There are, once you enact a law, people often be, begin to behave differently. If the payoff functions don't change, how can the behavior begin to change. The only possible way is if the game is still unchanged, behavior change can happen in one way. If you expect other people to behave differently, then even if the game is the same, 
you may decide to behave differently because others will behave differently. In other words, what a law can do is deflect from what was happening to another part of the same game and make that, and I will explain this term in a moment, a focal point. It can create a focal point. That, that is what you expect the police to do. After the new law on 70 miles per hour, you somehow expect the police person to come and catch you if you drive faster. And, but you must make it rational for everyone. Otherwise, they won't do that. You'll have to explain the police person's behavior because this is neoclassical economics. You have to explain everyone's. But what the law can do is create a new focal point. A focal point is a strange half-understood character, and there are some fussy game theorists who give it no importance because it's half-understood, but I feel it's an extremely powerful idea. We can't fully define quite what it is, but we know it plays an important role, and it was Thomas Schelling in his classic book who wrote about this, and I'm going to give you a quick glimpse of what a focal point is because this whole approach is a focal point approach to law that I'm going to talk about. Take this strange-looking game, it's a very easy game. Uh, you don't need any game theory for this. There are two players playing this game. Both of you will have to choose one of these squares. If you choose the same square, you will get, both of you choose the same square, you'll get $1,000 each. If you choose different squares, you'll get nothing. Now, you can't talk before the game. You can't wink at each other. You just sit and you choose. In this game, you'll be just desperate to know the other person's mind because all you need to do is choose the same square. But this game has a huge problem. The squares look almost identical, so you don't know what the other person is going to do. So, in fact, in this game, if I may use the technical language of Nash equilibrium, each square is a Nash equilibrium in the sense that if both choose that square, then that's good. You don't want to change your behavior. So there are lots of Nash equilibria, but the trouble is you don't know which one the other person is going for. There's a very easy way in which I can solve the problem of this, is toss into the middle of these squares a golden stone. I just place it over there, saying I'm the game organizer. Place it there, go away and say that, look, both of you will have to choose a square, and if you choose the same one, you will get $1,000 each. It's predictable remarkably well. Almost all players will go for that square where the gold stone is sitting. That strange thing has created a focal point. Of all these 16 points, which were indistinguishable, one has become focal, salient. It allows you to coordinate your behavior. You now know you have a belief about what the other person will do, and the other person has a belief about you, and this is a mutually self-sustaining belief. Focal points at times come about naturally. A good example is in, if you are driving a car in an Indian village, which side of the road you drive on, really, effectively, there is no law. I mean, there is law, but there's <laughs> no one who will care to trouble you. And I have to say that occasionally you will find people taking full advantage of the absence of the law. But despite there not being a law, there is a custom. When you see a coming, car coming head-on, you move on to the left-hand side. It's the practice in the cities, which is 
enforced by a law which has become a custom here and it's self-enforcing that if you others are driving on the left you better drive on the left and so it's a self-fulfilling thing so what happens in the city provides you a focal point of how to behave in the village and you do that there are some beautiful real life examples of the use of focal point i don't know whether it was done with the use of focal point theory or just intelligently done first time i saw this was in heathrow airport now you'll see it all over uh, in all airports suppose you've decided uh, with a friend that you want to meet up with this friend in Heath at Heathrow Airport at four o'clock in the afternoon but the friend is coming from somewhere else two of you have forgotten to decide where exactly you will meet in the olden days this used to be on the rare occasions when you would choose the time know everything but not choose the place that would be a dilemma. You would try to guess, this is a bookish friend I have, so it'll be W.H. Uh, Smith or something like that, and you may miss out each other. First time I saw this in Heathrow, suddenly in the middle of the space, a sign had been put up which said meeting point. <laughs> a meeting point is a focal point, that's all. I mean, you don't need to do anything. You don't have to tell anyone. You just put up a sign where you know that in this massive game where there are lots of Nash equilibria, you've given salience to one Nash equilibrium where you go and stand. So the meeting point is actually a very practical use of a focal point. But life is riddled with this is what I am going to argue. I'm just wondering if I will... Um, You're fine. Take, You're fine. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you may come to regret that, but... Uh, <laughs> Let me still uh, carry on. So um, I'm going to show you one picture. And this, this particular picture, I'm not going to labor that. This is going to interest people uh, uh, who uh, are, have some interest in game theory. Basically, what you have to do, I'm arguing, is the law creates a focal point. So the game is unchanged. And the game can have many equilibria. The law draws attention to a particular equilibrium. And a focal point, there is no guarantee that everyone will play by that. I mean, me meeting point, if you know your friend is crazy and will ignore that or not even crazy, but is confident that you will be in W.H. Smith, then that focal point would not work. The meeting point would not work. There's no compelling theory why a focal point works. And there is indeed that problem. But minimally what you need is a game when you fully specify with the police and the courts and the ju judges, the game must have several equilibria. And you're all caught in some equilibrium. What a law does is simply urges people to go to another equilibrium. That's all that the law can do. It can't change the game. It draws attention to another equilibrium, which usually the way we draft laws, we want to improve situations in life. So you want an equilibrium where people will be better off. This is a picture which I will not labor. I'll just leave it over there. This is a three-person prisoner's dilemma for people who are familiar with that. This is the old prisoner's dilemma that I had. With the right hand payoff, the police person's payoff, when the other two play this game. The police person can choose two games, two moves. Just sit back and do nothing, let others play the game, I'll get one util each. Or be vigilant and impose a fine uh, on uh, a person who does B. That influences my payoff in some crazy way, the police person's payoff but the police person can choose left or right. This game actually has two equilibria. Everyone can be sitting over here, BB, they do badly and the police does nothing. Or the good equilibrium, where people begin to go for the good action AA, 
And the police is vigilant. If you do wrong, you will be punished. It can be very easily checked. There are these two equilibria. What a law does is pushes you, tries to push you. That's why I, I want to explain why it very often fails. It simply holds up another point as a superior, and all it says that the police will catch you if you do like this, and the police will have an incentive to do that. Still, they may decide to collectively ignore, and it's often ignored, but it draws attention to another one. Now, this opens up a big question. This is the focal point approach to law, and there are some legal scholars, Richard McAdams, Eric Posner, Robert Kuta, who have gone this direction, but it is not quite the same thing. And again, I'll try to explain, but it may remain a bit of an open question as to why that's not the same thing, but I'll write it up in my paper. But let me now tell you the problems. Once you agree with this, that a law can't change the game, a law simply draws attention to another superior outcome and urges people. There is a psychological element. If you feel everyone else will ignore this new focal point, you have no reason to pay attention to this. If you know your friend ignores the meeting point sign, you'll be utterly foolish to go and stand underneath that. So a collective looking away from the law is an equilibrium. You are already in an equilibrium, you remain in that equilibrium. But the law urges you, and in societies where you know that as soon as the law is announced, others will begin to react to it and move towards that, that law is going to be effective because that prior, that others' belief in the law is already instilled in society. And this is going to give a different understanding of why some laws work and why some laws don't work. And I want to now get into reasons why the, a law, which now, now on a law does not change your payoff function, simply points to a better outcome. In this game, you are here. The law points to this, which is an equilibrium. Why doesn't, does the law at times work well, at times work badly? One of the reasons, first of all, is again a very mainstream answer. A focal point can only be an equilibrium point. If it's not in the interest of an individual to be there, even if others are there, that's not a focal point. Focal point, by definition, is one of the equilibrium points. You make that salient. So if the law tries to drive a behavior, which even if everyone follows, it's in someone's interest to deviate, you will not get that outcome to occur. So minimally, a law has to push you towards a self-fulfilling outcome. If it does not do that, you will not get there. And this sort of links up very well with, in economics, the mechanism design literature. But there is another problem, and I think this affects a lot of developing countries. A law is the creation of a focal point. But for societies to be possible, focal points develop, focal points of behavior. Uh, which are to do with norms, nothing to do with the law. Over time to survive, you develop certain norms. You know, I, I will not have time to go into that, but I had once worked on punctuality behavior uh, with Jorgen Weibull. We have a paper on punctuality, and we take a very generous view of punctuality and unpunctuality in this, that punctual behavior is simply an equilibrium outcome. In a society where everyone is punctual, it's worthwhile for you to be punctual. You get rewarded for punctuality. When you show up on time, you don't have to wait. In a society where everyone is unpunctual, it's not individually rational for you to be punctual. So 
whole societies are together more punctual or less punctual, and it's nothing to do with fundamental differences between human beings. They are identical. They are just caught in different equilibrium behavior. When we were doing this paper, I remember reading lots of uh, non-economics literature, Jorgen Weibull and I were reading, and there were some delightful ones in. Uh, there's a paper that looks at watches in South America, Brazil, and in the United States, people's watches. Brazil punctuality is rather less than in the United States. And they showed by studying lots of watches that in Brazil, apparently watches are not that well coordinated on time. This was 25 years ago. Now, since we were working, he from Sweden, me from India, I had some priors about which is the more punctual country between these two. And I was trying to dig up evidence on whether watches are coordinated in India well or not. And I could not get hold of any data set on watch timings. But while I was working on that paper, this is a very memorable experience, I arrived in Delhi, and a gentleman walked up to me and asked me for the time using a form of question which is very common in India, and that gave me the full answer. He said, excuse me, sir, can you tell me the time by your watch? <laughs> this is very standard expression in India, and it's a one-point evidence that there is some dependence on watches of time. So this paper, uh, we argue that society gets caught in different kinds of expected behavior on the part of others, but this can take you into some very deep explanations. There's a paper by Rachel Crampton and Anand Swamy, a very beautiful paper on uh, debt and default laws and practices in India. This is during the colonial period. Uh, the credit markets worked very badly. There would be default, not all the time, but there would be default, and people would not pay, run away. They would pay at times, etc. To change this, the British in Bombay Deccan uh, brought in the civil courts and a formal law, that this is how you have to behave after you've signed on to, uh, you've taken credit. And what this paper finds, this is in Journal of Development Economics, is after this formal law was brought in, actually behavior deteriorated. There was worse uh, how people were reacting uh, to one another. There was greater default to start with. They go into an analysis of the law being incomplete, but I think there is something else. Society gets, develops its own norms as to how to react to one another. When you bring in another norm, which is through the law, you are trying to create two focal points. There's already a focal point. You're creating another focal point. And there is nothing as bad as two focal points, because there can be mismatching of where, what you're targeting and what the other person is targeting. If someone in Heathrow decided that I'm going to make it easier for people by putting up another meeting point sign some distance away so that you don't have to walk too far. The efficacy of that meeting point is going to drop dramatically because people may end up at different places and wait for them. So actually the coordination that was there earlier could go down as a consequence of this second focal point being created. I feel in developing countries this is a problem that we have to contend with because a lot of society was made possible through social norms, complicated social norms that had developed. And in economics, there is a big literature on self-fulfilling social norms. Punctuality is a case of a social norm, but there are many other social norms where you know roughly what to expect from another and the other person knows what to expect from you. If you come in with a law and try to change the focal point, because that's a superior one, but if the previous one was very deeply entrenched, 
It's not clear what will happen. First of all, you may collectively decide. Decide doesn't have to be a conscious thing. You know how the other person behaves, and you will respond to that behavior, which is the existing behavior. And you are still locked into the old behavior. The law does nothing. The worst scenario, which is what uh, Cranton and Swami were, uh, were talking about, is the law actually causes a problem. Some people think that you are now going to live by the law, and others think you won't. So in fact, the coordination problem is going to break down, and you will begin to do worse by virtue of this uh, law. I want to take up a few more minutes now on where do we go from here, once you change this view. And if you also want to question some of the priors of uh, the neoclassical model along with this, then what is the direction to go? The way I believe is you have to allow for the fact, which we know from behavioral economics, that one assumption that is there, that human beings come with well-defined preferences in their heads and try to maximize that, there is a lot of behavioral economics experiments in laboratories which show that human beings are not rational in that sense. I have to say economics is probably the only profession where you need lab experiments to persuade people that everyone is not always rational. Uh, in fact, I'm remembering maybe it was in the same room, Amartya's lecture on behavior and the concept of preference, which actually talked about some of the criticisms of our um, uh, uh, notions of rationality. Subsequently, his other paper, Rational Fools, went into that as well. This has been questioned, of course, in economics now. Several people have done that. But what behavioral economics does, and there are some very important the things that it will do, it shows how specific ways in which the standard assumption of rationality breaks down. It is, for instance, now already known that one kind of ink on paper does make a difference. If before people play a game, if they write down on paper that I'm going to do this in the prisoner's dilemma, the chances are, not chances, but there'll be a higher probability that that person will do what that person has said that person will do, even if it is not in your self-interest. If you want to put it into self-interest, you can say that your utility function changes. Once you've written down, your preferences begin to change, and it therefore changes your behavior. I believe there should be scope for that, and actually the way people respond to the law has something to do with this. But that will not take you back to the traditional school of law and economics, because that holds on to the neoclassical rational assumption and has something else. What I'm suggesting is you may want to change both now, that once you bring in the focal point approach to the law, you have to also allow for the fact that writing down the law could be affecting behavior. And this can happen in two different ways. And this has to be a bit of a research agenda. I don't immediately know how to do it. To go this way, where human beings do get affected by the law, and even legal scholars have writings on this, the expressionist function of law will take you into this, but not quite into what I'm arguing for. But they are aware of the fact that just the writing down of the law begins to affect behavior. But it can do it in two ways. One is, uh, let me um, uh, pull back a little bit. Uh, you have to, to understand this, you have to think of the game of life. If you write down a game, you have to distinguish between two kinds of players. Citizens and the agents of the state, call them enforcers. So think of a game consisting of ordinary citizens and enforcers. What's happened in a lot of industrialized countries is the enforcers have indeed learnt that when a law is written down, their job is to enforce. You don't think 
too many times as to is it in my interest to enforce or not. That is the law that I will do. Individuals are still rational. That's why you need the hand of the law. Otherwise, you wouldn't need the hand of the law. They will try to maximize. But the enforcers of the law, they are not the way neoclassical economics writes down individuals. They may have a side to them which could be moral, which could also be just they are virtually pre-programmed that once something is written down as law, we will do this. This also relates to a literature in uh, law um, in, by the legal scholars mainly on legitimacy of law. Why is something legitimate? And legitimacy can happen, happen at two levels. One is legitimacy for the enforcers, that they will enforce the law. If you have legitimacy of the law in all human beings, then at one level you don't need enforcers. As soon as you write down the law, yes, you're going to, if it's legitimate, everyone will follow that. You do see that occasionally. Cigarette smoking in public space. Um, when it started in India that uh, it was a law, you were not supposed to smoke in public space, and then no one even looks at the law. I used to wonder if this will ever become common practice, that you don't light up in public space, or will individuals continue to be selfishly rational, and when they felt like smoking, they would light up. Amazingly, this practice has changed completely in India. People don't light up in public spaces. So, yes, the law can affect everyone, but if that happened automatically on everything, we wouldn't need enforcers. So you need to build a model where you recognize that there are two sets of players, the enforcers of the law and the citizens. The citizens, you can leave them as rational agents who will respond, but the enforcers have to take on seriously what the law requires them to do. How do you get to this mindset where when something is announced by the law, you do it for that reason and not just because together you will get to an equilibrium? These are things we don't know. And even the focal point theory, which in game theory a lot has been written about, exactly what causes something to be focal and takes you there, we don't know. And we, uh, we do have contrasting examples that uh, there are the ration shop um, uh, law that I was telling you, where the government of India hands over to ration shops, some 500,000 ration shops, cheap subsidized food, and tells them that now it is your job, you are an employer of the government, to sell it to the poor at a below market price, they don't do that. We know that 44% of the food, this is some years ago, I know the data, would leak out because these people who are agents of the government actually was selfishly maximizing their utility. So you get the grain from the government, sell it on the market, make the profit, and when the poor people come, you tell them to go away. But one can think that through time this mindset changes. So you have to also work on the human mindset for a lot of the law to become more effective. And first of all, the enforcers of the law, if their mindset begins to change, that will be some contribution towards this. The World Bank has uh, just produced a world development report which is on minds, mindsets, and behavior, which looks into actually one dimension of this problem. And I'm very, very happy that we have just decided that the next world development report uh, which will come out at the end of 2016, is going to be on governance and the law, which is another side of this big puzzle as to why the, um, the law enforcement does not happen better and more effectively and what is a good law and what is a bad law. Thank you very much. I was able to promise you that you would hear from 
Professor Nicholas Stern, and you will now, um, in response to this wonderful lecture from Kashik Basu. Nicholas Stern is the IG Patel Chair, uh, Professor of Economics and Government, Director of the India Observatory, Chair of the Grantham Institute. All of this is at LSE, and he is also President of the British Academy, which slightly exceeds LSE. Thank you, thank you, Craig, and uh, thank you, Koshik. That um, the, the sense of fun and ideas and the judgment about what's important um, stays with you whilst you're at the World Bank, and uh, that is uh, a splendid achievement. It was a lovely, lovely lecture, and thank you. Um, I had, um, and I don't want to take up too much time, I had one technical question, but it's an important one because it raises quite big philosophical issues. And the second one is um, more speculative um, concerning how you might move from one corruption equilibrium to another and I'll tell one or two tales from India. Um, first one is technical. Um, uh, and there's a fundamental flaw in Becker's model um, which uh, se seems to have gone insufficiently noticed. And I, I did publish on it in the early 1970s, pointing it out, but it's pretty obvious. And that is that, uh, you know, you had your uh, B compared the benefit from the mining project, say, uh, compared with the probability times P times F, the punishment. Well, if punishment is costly, then um, uh, to administer, to, to catch or to, to administer, you're always going to do better by um, reducing the probability and uh, increasing F by the same proportion, keeping PF the same. So in other words, you move to very low probability, very high punishment with the same product, P times F. And uh, essentially what Becker wrote down was a, was a model with no solution. Essentially, it rushed to the corner solution of infinite punishment with probability zero, where the product of P and F was whatever you wanted it to be. So it's a very simple technical fault in the model he wrote down. How did he get out of that? Well, he just said, well, let's imagine that P is fixed. And then, of course, you can run the analysis through where you optimise the punishment and it sort of reflects that the, the, you get a, a result where the punishment fits the crime in the sense that uh, the punishment is roughly at the level of the marginal damage that the crime does. Um, but it's wrong because of that basic error. And uh, you then have to ask yourself, what is it that constrains punishment? What is it that we find wrong about very low probability of very high punishment? Well, it would offend our notion of the punishment in relation to the crime. So in other words, we have a, a notion of the punishment in relation to the crime, which doesn't come, doesn't come from marginal cost equals marginal benefit. It comes from a notion of how big it is just to have uh, a punishment relative to the crime. And I hesitate to say this because the biographer of... Uh, Herbert Hart is uh, in the audience, but he actually saw his way through that and said, this is uh, the, the good part of retribution. Uh, it shouldn't be. Retribution shouldn't, should be limited by the nature of the uh, offence. Um, so basically, Becker was just wrong, and it's... Uh, <laughs> 
And it, it's astonished me how long that wrongness has hung about in the, uh, in the literature. So it's a technical question that he writes down a model where essentially you push to a corner solution or a model that has no solution. Um, but it actually raises very big questions of how we judge the appropriateness of punishment. And my reaction to that um, was that you have to go outside the simple... Um, neoclassical framework. Neoclassical doesn't actually have an answer to, to that question. That's a technical thing. Now, another, let me just tell tales from Indian villages now. Um, as you know, I've, I've been um, working in one Indian village for more than 40 years, roughly since the time that we met, actually, um, uh, in the mid-'70s. And you wonder why people put up with the corruption. Uh, how is it that the collective action doesn't take place to say that this is just outrageous, we're not standing for it? And every now and again, very rarely, but it happens that you get surprised, and it, it does. And um, it happened about five years ago when the Pradhan was so drunk and so greedy and made off with the free school meals... And they just got so fed up that they adopted a, a method of petitioning for a re-election, which they'd never done before. They petitioned for the re-election and, you know, they threw the bastard out. And, or rascal, I think, is more appropriate. Uh, uh, they threw the rascal out. <laughs> and uh, so it, it, you start asking yourself the question, how do these equilibria change. Well, if people get so outrageous, then it can happen. What pushed Xi Jinping into... This isn't a tale from the Indian village. What, what pushed Xi Jinping into his campaign on corruption? The fury in China, as communicated through the internet and other ways, has built up to a point where it was quite dangerous to the existing uh, power structure. So it's very interesting to ask ourselves the question, at what point and what, in what circumstances can we find a new equilibrium? Where, how will it be? What circumstances, in what circumstances will that uh, pressure and people will act to try to find something different? I think... The interesting question is how do you move to an equilibrium with a lot of corruption to an equilibrium with much less corruption? Um, you get lots of examples going the other way, how you move from an equilibrium with not much corruption to an equilibrium with lots of corruption. And um, uh, probably when uh, shortly after Nehru died and the electoral process was not so predictable, um, Mrs Gandhi, who had it seems, not much interest in money for her own satisfaction. There was no sign of that. Uh, but she needed money for elections. And many observers of India would date an acceleration in corruption from the need to raise money to um, fund elections, and that was around uh, the, the 70s and where it started to... To pick up, so you can. It's easy to describe, I think, circumstances in which you get a downward spiral, but much more difficult to um, 
describes circumstances where you get a shift upwards, back out of corruption. And there it seems to me that economics, political economy, political science should have a really big uh, research agenda. And it's the kind of thing that in your... um, in your World Development Report, um, you obviously have in mind, because otherwise you wouldn't have chosen that subject's World Development Report. Last thing on a focal point, the clearest and most important example of a focal point, which you should know, and you probably do know, Koshik, because you're an honorary Londoner, is underneath the clock at Waterloo Station. (laughs) That's where Brief Encounters... You've seen the movie, right? And it's still used as the focal point without a label saying meeting point. Do you want to, do you want to respond? Yeah, I can briefly talk to this. You know, as Nick was speaking, I'm just attending to the question of how do you move from one equilibrium to another. Actually, the PF, I'm not going into that because at one level I was... Touching on that, but I was stopping. I know that there is an equilibrium where it's endless. You just keep pushing the P in one direction, F in the other. I was cutting it off um, uh, using an arbitrary argument, but I was just giving you a quick presentation of the Becker form. But let me just get into this. How do you shift from one equilibrium to another? And also about anger. One of the the role of anger uh, in enforcing some of these, one of the problems with analyzing this is there is a great... um, hard behavior side to both these uh, and for a rational reason that uh, if a village pradhan is behaving badly uh, uh, for a long time even if you hate it you don't want to be the one who stands up alone because there will be disastrous consequences for you so I feel these things very often remain bottled up for a long time until the anger is so much that people stand up and then again it's you're comfortable because there are so many people standing up together that there is, it isn't obvious that you're going to be picked up. Whenever you have these multiple equilibrium stories, there is a problem that I, I feel actually life is full of multiple equilibria, but it's not very uh, good for analysis in the sense that you don't quite know when you're going to shift from one to the other. And I feel also this movement from the corrupt equilibrium to a non-corrupt equilibrium I, uh, this is something will be interesting to check. I feel in societies, the transformation takes place over a relatively short period because at one level, what you need when you become a law-abiding person and the police person catches you when you violate is you know that the other person knows that this is the focal point that you, you are moving towards. But there is something about collective belief. If you alone go and stand, Tower of London or Meeting Point, and the other person does not, you, you get penalized. You, you are hurt by that. But So there is this, both of these I felt, beneath this there is a multiple equilibria story, so they are valid. But to take them and to do analysis will require us to grapple with this. So let me stop with that at this okay. point. Okay, this is terrific. Now, we've been conducting an experiment, and this has been filmed. Uh, we have here an experiment in whether focal points are created equally. A lecturer is actually, in a way, like a focal point. We've had two comments. We have inequality. But we have the possibility of changing the game, as, as in all of these games. And, and it raises the question of whether if the lecturer is actually named after you, Right? Does this create a sort of new equilibrium? And um, would it be the case that without there being any law, the audience might in fact call for the participation on the stage of Amartya Sen?
of them. This is one of the meaner tricks I've seen you play. <laughs> and I, if I had um, you know my tricks. real um, uh, uh, attempt to uh, have illusion of grandeur, I should have <laughs> made a contract with you that I have to be asked three times before <laughs> I come up. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But I, I wanted to say since I am willy-nilly here, <laughs> say that um, um, it's, it's a very wonderful lecture, of course, not a surprise, I've heard him speak. Uh, it was a great delight, of course, to have Kofik uh, in my class, as well as the PhD student, working on a thesis called Revealed Preference of Government. Part of it was very technical, and were being published in the Journal of Mathematical Economics and such. And part of it was very practical, dealing with uh, uh, what happens if you assume that the government are trying to pursue consistently some goals. And what he showed is that actually, quite often, it looks absolutely bizarre what the government is trying to do. And it's... Um, uh, and I think that uh, that book, by the way, came to University Press, and that is still uh, still there, and you can read that. Um, on the question of the um, focal point, can I make a couple of things? Uh, I think the uh, next concern, which has been, I know, a concern for you, with you uh, for many decades, with uh, Gary. Now, suppose you put a maximum that you can do. Then, uh, you know, you won't go to all the way. They will have a defined... You'll have a corner solution. You get there. But, so, in some ways, there are two different points you're making, weren't you? One is the in absence of an equilibrium, uh, because the corner is just... Uh, there is no corner. And the other is that the corner could be extremely unjust. I mean, just to take uh, an example in next line, Suppose um, instead of fining people, say, 50 pounds for feeding, you send them uh, to jail for 30 years if you're caught. But actually try not to catch them very much, uh, occasionally, and it costs you very little. Maybe every second year some speed uh, calculation takes place, and the guys who get caught are sent to prison for 30 or 40 years. Now, I think the... I think this... Um, you can easily adjust it such that the PF would be exactly the same as 50 pounds being paid uh, each occasion and frequently being caught. And I think the rebellion, that rebellious thought that people have, uh, which is actually much more serious, I think, than... Then we admit, I think most of us, I don't know about you, I have a, I think almost nothing of Jeremy Bentham I can't say I like. Uh, on the other hand, I do like his discussion on punishment, as to why punishment retribution is just a wrong thought. On the other hand, the fact that we will regard this as unjust, that some guy who Wednesday morning one year comes out and gets caught and sent to prison for 40 years, while others, nothing happens to them. We feel that there's some concern with the fairness of retribution, 
And that, I think, is quite devastating for the kind of belief that even I have, and which I learned from Bentham, namely that the retribution should never figure in that. So it's a, it's a really serious issue. That, and I think both these points, of course, relate to the, to the issues uh, you were talking about. Uh, and I want to make one other point. I, I think the question of there being two um, focal points or salient points, whichever. Um, now, there was a period when, uh, many years ago, in the early 90s, I, I was advising the Italian parliament. Uh, they had something called the Anti-Mafia Commission, uh, chaired by Violante, uh, and I was one of the advisors to that. Uh, and I roamed around the country a certain amount. The only time I've traveled when I went to Sicily with three policemen in front and three policemen behind. And I was asked when I came home whether I felt secure. And I had to say that I never felt more, less secure in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the interesting things is that in answer to this query as to why do you not mind corrupt behavior, well, the standard thing was... Um, but uh, there are two arguments. One, that everyone's corrupt, and if I don't compete and pay the bribe, I would, be, I would lose out in the game. And the other is, well, everyone does it. There's nothing extraordinary about it. But in some ways, I mean, I wouldn't say Italy has become corruption-free, but it's dramatically less. Something did happen, and it shifted from one side to the other. And this is not the only time it happened. Basically, you don't need to get to a full compliance, in a, in a, even close to it. There's a kind of magic number, like 30 or 40. I'm trying to think of the name of the guy who is at, um, uh, who is at um, um, University of California, San Diego. I'm, uh, just the name is escaping me now. Who studied on uh, foot binding in China. And it's, a, it's required a kind of parents saying we wouldn't allow the daughter to be footbound. And, and that was the time when about 100% of the, of the gentle families had that. And basically when about 30 or between 30 or 40% said they wouldn't, then there was a kind of snowball from that to 100%. So there's a really interesting dynamic thing connected with you. What makes you move from one um, salient, well, one focal point to another focal point. And there's a sense that um, people, there are a lot of people there who want to do it but can't do it because others don't do it. And there are a lot of others who would like to do it because um, others are doing it, become the new norm. And something coming from zero to 30% is a very big change. And I think that tends to have a Effect. I don't know whether you want to comment on any of those. Actually, uh, the, the last one I um, would, would love to comment. Uh, there is uh, this uh, literature, and uh, you're right in reminding me it uh, relates uh, to this. It's, it's the tipping point literature, and uh, that's what you're thinking of, that uh, when uh, you have uh, two uh, possible outcomes, a good or a bad outcome, you don't have to call them good or bad, two different equilibria, corrupt or non-corrupt, um, both of them are still equilibrium. If you, suddenly everyone switched over there, you would be in the better one. But that doesn't happen. What we do know, and this can be put into some formal analysis, that uh, 
there will be, and the critical point differs depending on reaction functions and things like that. When a certain number goes over, then it's in individual interest to uh, begin to change your behavior, and you suddenly get a rush of uh, behavior to that point. You see this, of course, in fashions very often. Uh, what someone begins to do, uh, which could look a bit crazy to start with, as other people take on, suddenly you reach a tipping point when that becomes a fashion and it looks uh, normal. What, there's one important lesson, and both to what uh, Nick was saying and what Amartya just said from this is, we do know that some of these tipping points uh, can be moved around by who it is who's changing behavior. You know, society has role models. So if there are ind important individuals who begin to change their behavior, you can get the tipping point coming sooner by people beginning to imitate that person and you go over to the better equilibrium. So while I was making that agnostic remark that these are things we understand, multiple equilibria, but don't quite know where to go. Well, there are certain things we can do. And here I do think behavioral economics does contribute, is that we've got a bit of a better understanding as to is it always that after 30% that the tipping takes place, or are they within that can you engineer so that you can get to the better equilibrium by getting people to do? And there are examples of people from the film industry, fashion icons doing good things, making statements about certain kinds of behavior can cause a rush very quickly. So indeed, it's an important idea, and maybe we can take it a bit further by bringing in behavioral economics into this. Great. We have time for just a few questions from the audience. And may I ask you if you wish to ask one to identify yourself and to wait for the microphone to do it. So one in the back on the side there. Um, Naomi Calgaro. I'd like to thank everyone for very, very interesting contributions. Um, I don't know if I'm permitted two questions, but my first relates to smoking, um, specifically in this country. Um, I'd be interested in the views on um, equilibrium and the law regarding the rights of people such as myself, non-smokers, asthmatics, um, to have a peaceful existence within our own um, homes, our own gardens. At present, the smoke even comes into, into my house through the windows from both sides. And the other question, if I may, regards Rabindranath Tagore. He set up what was effectively a state within a state during the British Raj. It was amazing. His own multi-tier judiciary, low-key police force, microcredit bank, which um, inspired uh, Eunice with Grameen, um, his own schools, etc. And I just wonder if if um, you'd care to comment on the equilibrium between Tagore's effectively self-contained state within a state and the British state. Thank you. Do you want me to take two or three questions? Let's take two or three. Yeah, yeah. let's take a few. Okay, another question. Let's go to the gentleman up at the side, upstairs. Yeah. Hello, my name is Gaurav and I'm an LSE alum. On the topic of economics as an academic discipline, a large contingent of the public believe that mainstream economics that universities like LSE and Cambridge teach has failed both to predict and explain the world around us and as well as to address and remedy issues that affect the lives of ordinary people. To address this, academic dissenters like Hajun Chang at Cambridge and Stephen Marjolin at Harvard proposed that teaching heterodox economics from undergraduate level onwards would be a welcome development for the discipline. Do you agree? Simple yes or no question. That's good. <laughs> Another question. Okay, gentleman in the right 
black sweater, white shirt over here. Uh, hi, my name is Ryo. I'm uh, from the University of Tokyo in Japan. Uh, I have a question about how we can apply game theory in the context of uh, the interaction, repeated interaction between state and non-state actors. Uh, I think many of us have been witnessing the atrocities in Syria, and I was wondering if we can somehow induce some sort of cooperative behavior between uh, traditional nation states and uh, these uh, organizations that have no affiliation with any nation state. Okay, let me give Koshika a chance to answer now. Let me, um, as best as I can, answer these questions, which will not be very good, I should warn you. Uh, difficult questions. You know, um, um, your thing about smoking, and uh, at one level it is heartening what has been achieved. There's a lot you can do, but smoking is a good example how after the law kicked in, norms have got into play as well. So... Um, initially, you may have to stop people by asking them not to smoke, but it's become a more and more of a practice. And when I see this, especially in India, where I thought this wouldn't happen, it's very heartening. But actually, given that it's heartening, this is very clear that this is an instrument that can be taken further. Even the smoke that is coming in through your window, one can begin to think of ways, and this relates not only to the cigarette smoke, but environmental matters, where this is a very big question. Trying to police it entirely through the law, we can do that much and not much further. But if we can think of ways in which the norm actually the norm gets leveraged by the law, we can do much more. The understanding of how we go from one to the other is minimal, but we know from lots of examples and laboratory studies today that one does spill over into the other. Tagore and small community, that's a bit like the last question about uh, other organizations and um, um, interaction with the government. This, there are good sides and bad sides to that. Of course, there are small groups that develop their own rules of behavior and punishment, which at times could lead to mafia-like behavior, where you're challenging the state for some very narrow gains. But there are also examples of their own rules, which are almost they mimic a law, whether in a small community like uh, Tagore doing, or whether it is across societies, can play a big role. There are examples, like um, uh, Avner Greif has worked on this, uh, Maghribi traders developing rules of punishment within their own group of traders, that if someone violates, you don't have to go to the law courts. It's their own internal rules by which you punish the person who's violating a norm to keep, keep people in place. So good and bad, and indeed, this, oh, the state, the overarching state that is there, if it is a good one, it should tolerate these, the good ones that are cropping up and allow them to flourish. Actually, Ithaca has a one custom, uh, upstate New York, good or bad, I don't know, it's a local currency called Ithaca Hours. So you can actually exchange goods by paying with this local currency called Ithaca Hours. There is also a PhD <coughs> thesis on this small community that uses the sort of belief in this slip of paper which is called an Ithaca Hour. <coughs> good or bad, I don't know, some people say it causes inflation in America because there are a couple of shops which use that. But it is a, s a small community is getting into this. I'm jumping to the uh, last question and then I'll uh, come back uh, to the earlier one on heterodox economics. Is 
something similar is true over there. It's organizations that you want to bring in. But you know organizations that are far out and have a totally different mindset. It's very difficult to reach. And I wish I knew an, an answer to what you do with organizations that you're trying to reach out. But one's hope is also the goodness of discourse elsewhere. It sounds a bit moralistic. Goodness of uh, discourse elsewhere can have an influence on human thought far away, and one looks for some hope over there. And your question, it was a, supposed to be a yes-no answer, but I'll give a slightly longer one. <laughs> it is true that in many important ways, um, economics has failed. I mean, it's, uh, we don't have enough understanding of a whole lot of things. But first of all, there are also ways in which economics has given us important pieces of understanding. You know, when you look at certain kinds of... Um, big management, inflation management, the huge inflations which used to take place. You know, the world records of inflation are not in developing countries, not in Latin America, not in Africa. The big inflation records are in Europe. Uh, Hungary in 1946 is probably the world record. Germany in 1923. We've got to understand inflation better. And through a variety of mechanisms, it, it is being handled. But I agree that there are bigger questions, poverty eradication, we've been far too slow. Should we allow for heterodox economics to be taught? I very strongly feel we should allow. We should encourage, and that's the way new thoughts can come into place. But am I hopeful that out of that thought there will be lessons and a better world? I don't know, frankly. It's just allowing space for another kind of thought to come in over and above the mainstream, but I'm not sure that that will work. But there should be space for that thought and discourse and with students being brought in. Marcia, would you like to comment on these questions? Um, well, I, I, I think the, um, the answer to the uh, complex question about uh, what to teach, uh, the, the answer must be yes, uh, but it depends on how much uh, what kind of heterodoxy you bring in. I think my grumble about heterodoxy now is that it's tended to take some very straightforward form, like bringing in, say, more anthropology into economics and so on. And a whole lot of ways in which economics could be improved had not um, been pursued. So there is, as it were, an orthodoxy of heterodoxy, which has made it difficult to get full benefit from the spread that you're hoping uh, you'd, uh, that to, uh, to achieve. And just on the subject of changing one's behavior, it's not always very easy to do. You know, I'm, I'm habitually not punctual uh, <laughs> and come late. And one occasion I decided to reform, and I showed up on time, and no one was there. And after a little while, they started coming in, and they say, you cheated us. You came on time. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's uh, you know, because it all depends on your expectation. There used to be a story which we used to be uh, familiar with in our school days about people from Minsk uh, always lie, and people from Finsk sometimes do and sometimes don't. And you ask a guy, a chap who comes from Minsk, He's asked, saying, um, where are you from? And he says, uh, Minsk. To which this chair said, you liar. I know you are from Minsk. You are saying Minsk, thinking that I will assume that you are from Pinks. <laughs> but in fact, I do know you are actually from Minsk, and you can't get away with that kind of lie with me. Now, this whole thing turns on the expectation of behavior. The serious point behind it 
is that the, when you're trying to move them from one um, uh, cluster equilibrium, what are we calling, uh, one focal equilibrium to another, you have to not only change their behavior, you have to change their expectation of the behavior of others, which often is quite a hard thing to do. I mean, it's part of the program uh, that you, you, you want to pursue. You weren't drawn on Tagore. No, I, uh, I thought that was, uh, can't take away from the speaker the rights to answer that question. And I have the very unfortunate duty of saying that we are past our deadline. It's not a law. It's a powerful norm, however, at the LSE that we have to end by 8 p.m. Let me ask you to once again join in thanking all three of our speakers. Thank you.